My name's David Masterton. I'm joined by the wonderful Dockley. Doc- <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's try that again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Remind Podcast. My name's David Masterton. I'm joined by the wonderful Dr. Ashley Morland. And today, we're going to be talking about change and why mm. as much as you want it, it can be still so hard. What do you reckon about this topic, Ash? So hard. I love this topic. It is so fascinating to me as a therapist that people's lives can be so messed up. Like people's lives can be such a challenging web of hurt and suffering and yet to change it, even if the outcome of that change would be better, they often will struggle to step into it. And it could even be like you sort of say that there's there's things where like people's lives are genuinely messed up. But I'm also feeling that there's a perception as well that when people sort of feel as though their lives are messed up and they simply just want better. But there's a whole number of these little things that they're wanting to change. Now, there might be some big things in there. There might be some little things, but it's just daunting because there's, there's, there's perceived challenges. And that could be... As bad as things are right now, what if what I think I want, I go to change it and it's not exactly what I thought it would be to go and chase after it in the first place? Yeah, it wouldn't be as fulfilling or it wouldn't be as it wouldn't be what I think it's going to be. And the most obvious thing to think about, I think, with this is relationships. Like how often do people stay in relationships because they're scared of the alternative they're scared mm. of they have too much uncertainty around well what if i leave what if i don't find someone else what if what i've got's not so bad and you know it could be worse what if what if what mm. if so change in in every aspect it could be something as simple as wanting to drink more water that's a change true changing a car that's a change wanting yeah wanting to reduce alcohol consumption wanting to eat healthier food why is it that we can want the change so bad? Another example, we've got a retreat coming up and I have partnered with Emily Contarino, who's an amazing online nutritionist and um, PT. And something that her and I speak about a lot is people can want these lifestyle changes so badly what is it that makes them sabotage it? Wanting the change isn't enough to make the change, even if you want it badly. Well, so what is it that makes them sabotage it? Well, I think it's a bit more about if it's just one thing, like for me, right, I still struggle with movement, exercise, and eating the right stuff, right? Still have it as, is, is my biggest challenge. You know, I sort of fluctuate up and down. If I was just focusing on that, no problem. All change would be made. But I'm, I've got the vision in my mind of the change train, right? So mm-hmm. you've got this thing at the front that you want to change, but all these things behind it also need to change as well. Because why is it that, say, for me, I enjoy comfort eating? Well, it's because there's something else happening that I need to change. So it's actually 
not necessarily I just need to stop going for the junk food or comfort mm-hmm. eating. I need to fix the thing that's down the next the next carriage down. Yeah. That is actually the issue, which yeah. it could be a job. Okay. It could be a relationship. It could be any of those things. Because essentially, if you're changing a job, is it because you hate the job? Yes, that does happen. Or is it you hate the people you work with? So it's always going to be relationship based, not necessarily just a partner you go home to, husband, wife, whatever it is. And then suddenly you you might find that, okay, for me, if my direct result of comfort eating is based on the next thing down, okay, well, I'm only one, one train or cart away from the fix. Now imagine it's all the way down the end. And I've got this deep-seated thing that I actually haven't really identified just yet. And not only do I, you know, I know what I want to fix, which is the eating problem, but I've got to go from this one back to this one, back to this one, back to this one, back to this one. And by the time I've got to the end, even just being aware of it, I'm already sort of fist deep into a bucket at KFC. So uh, why worry about it? Um, So it's, it's just, I think... There could be big things, or there could be just a whole lot of little things um, yep. with some big things mixed in there. Yeah, hundred percent. I completely agree with that. And quite often, the thing that we want to change, like I'll give you an example. Um, I had been craving really, really energy dense food. I'd been craving really just like shitty foods, basically, like lots of sweets, mm. lots of unhealthy foods which I know is not healthy for me um and when I was focused on eating less of those foods that's the change ultimately the change is in what I'm eating Mm. but again in conversations um well research shows this and also in conversations with Emily along the way we're talking about how um, protein consumption is so important. And so I made the commitment. The one thing I wasn't counting calories, not, you know, um, restricting what I was eating. I've still got the same foods in the cupboard. I've got the same, I'm still working from home because then I was saying, oh, my problem is, is that I'm working from home. So I'm standing Mm -hmm. in front of the cupboard all day and I'm just snacking and all this sort of stuff. So I was looking for somewhere else to work that wasn't at home. And really, um, I committed to one thing and the one thing was I'm just going to get enough protein in my day. I'm just not going to change anything else. I'm just going to make sure I am eating enough protein. And you know what? For now, that means I'm having protein shakes. But my one goal was regardless of how this comes, I'm going to get my protein, my ideal amount of protein every day. And guess what happened? The craving stopped the snacking stopped, the wanting high calorie food stopped because from a hormonal perspective, when we don't have enough protein, basically our body is screaming out for the essential amino acids it requires. And so it upregulates the hormones that drive that energy-seeking food so that we can survive. Um obviously you take one look at me and know that I'm hardly about to starve to death, but my cells didn't know that because I wasn't getting enough protein. And so 
this is where it can be really interesting because we can drive ourselves a little bit crazy in um, self-loathing and being really harsh on ourselves as to why are we not sticking with this change. And behaviour change is a really complex thing because part of it's a decision, right? So you were talking about the priorities, how there are things that you want to change in your life, but they're not consistent. They're kind of up and down. But what happens if you had an absolute health crisis? It was life or death. Mm. If you drink coffee ever again, you will die. It's going to be very easy to not drink coffee. Yeah. You're like, yep, no more inconsistencies there. I'm going to stick with that one 100%. (laughs) And you're 100% right because it, it comes down to it's sort of like, okay, what is the effect of not having this, of not doing the change? Okay, if the effect is, you know, everything's going okay, but I still want to desire something better, then what's this one coffee going to do? The coffee makes me feel good in the moment. The coffee does something for me, hence why I drink coffee, whether it's to get me up in the morning, whatever. By the way, just for everyone listening at home, I do have coffee, but it is decaf. And when I go out, it's with uh, almond milk for the man who knows exactly what it is. Do you drink a almond decaf? Latte. Absolutely. It is the most manly drink. I didn't realize we were coffee twins because my husband gives me so much crap. He actually feels embarrassed ordering my coffee, ordering a decaf almond latte. And I'm like, yeah, but it's extra hot. (laughs) My go-to line is when, because again, I take myself very seriously, especially when ordering the manliest drink in the world, as opposed to a strawberry daiquiri. Um, I'll say to the barista, if I'm feeling funny and they're sort of in the banter as well, okay, if it makes you feel better, to make it manlier, put it into a dirty cup. I'm fine with that, you know. (laughs) (laughs) but yes i was able to get rid of coffee um cold turkey did it last year you know three days were rough but after that i just i have decaf but to to be ironic i still do have an energy drink every now and again it's loaded full of sugar Mm-hmm. caffeine, all the rubbish in there, but it's just my guilty pleasure. Um, but, yes, it comes down to priority, right? It's sort of like what's the effect of not changing? If I'm feeling a little discomfort and I desire the, the change, well, I'm co- still kind of in my comfort zone, kind of doing the thing. I'm more in my comfort zone. Actually, that's what I'm trying to get to. I'm more within my comfort zone craving the change than I am actioning the change so when that comfort zone moves where i'm more in the comfort zone of being in the change and staying in the desire of the change such as david if you have any more energy drinks your heart will simply explode well you know what i will happily you know being in the discomfort of not changing is too much than actually going and changing it yeah. Because that fact has changed it. 100%. So it kind of feels like, I don't know, better the devil you know. It's not that bad. 
A hundred percent. This is exactly what happens, right? When you think about this from a nervous system perspective, every behavior is driven by a risk assessment from the nervous system. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of things that can contribute to that. So um, let's say if we have a limiting belief that is I'm not worthy of happiness or I'm not worthy of love or I'm not worthy of whatever, um, that belief, if there is a lifestyle habit or some aspect of our lifestyle that we would do if we loved ourselves, mm. if we don't feel like we're worthy of it, then our our body at a nervous system level driven by the unconscious programming will reject that thing. Like we mm. could know that getting up early, going to bed early, not drinking too much, we can know all these things are good for us. So this is really coming down to the, like I use this example a lot, how can a smoker know that smoking stinks it's really expensive and i mean the research is categorically proving that smoking Mm. is detrimental to your health and yet people still smoke if it was as easy as deciding to not smoke anymore people would just not smoke but it's not that easy yeah and coming coming from a reformed smoker I was at about, you know, I probably gave up cigarettes 10 years ago, but was at about 20 a day. So it's not terrible, but it's not light either. Mm -hmm. What I actually found with the smoking is I actually enjoyed it and I didn't want to quit. Yeah. But then I get these times where it's sort of like, well, I feel like quitting. And then a little bit of discomfort from trying to give up the withdrawals. And actually for me, the withdrawals were nothing compared to the psychological change in behavior, which is have a coffee, have a smoke, have a good yeah. meal, have a smoke. Because for me, a lot familiar. Yeah. Socializing for me was so much easier as a smoker because you'd find you're outside because you can't smoke inside anymore, especially when, when you're out. You walk up to another smoker, you light your cigarette, and you say to them, you know that shit's going to kill you. And it's yep. the best icebreaker ever. But I found breaking those patterns was so difficult. Up until, as you said before, health issue, I had an internal bleeding from an operation that went a little bit south. And I got basically a taste what it was like to have advanced emphysema mm-hmm. because the lungs sort of the bottom part stuck together or something, the diaphragm didn't work properly. And if I wasn't on oxygen, my O2 level would always just instantly dive below 90. And so that was a big wake-up call to sort of go, this is a potential future. Oh, okay. Um, I don't want to experience that ever again. So I looked at smokes very differently after that. Yeah. Yep, 100%. And I remember, um, was it in our conversation in our last episode where I was talking about my mum and smoking and the birth of my son? It might not have been. Um, But So my mum was a smoker. Both my parents were smokers my whole Mm. childhood. And I desperately wanted them to stop smoking. Like Mm. to the point where um, if uh, I, I would get a special reward if I performed really well in BMX. So I was the national champion multiple times when I was a kid. I competed at the world championships and things like that. And 
when I would have these amazing achievements, my mum and dad would say, choose something really special basically as a reward for your achievement. And more times than I can, I think one time I chose to go to Movie World, mm. um, but more times than I can count, the one thing that I asked for them from them was to stop smoking. That's what I wanted my reward to be for winning the next. And because, yeah, like it was at that time where a lot more was coming out. I was a young child terrified mm. that my parents were going to die. Mm. The smoke, smoking was a threat to me because that was, according to the world at the time, that was going to take my parents away from me. I mm. desperately wanted, wanted them to stop smoking. So there was definitely a trauma response there. But when I was 19, my mum had a brain aneurysm and I was living in Melbourne. She was in Queensland. And I got a phone call saying that um, my mum was being airlifted to the PA hospital in Brisbane and there was a 95% chance she was going to die. And I was in Melbourne. I was at work when I got the call and I got on the first flight to Brisbane and by some miracle she survived with no brain damage, completely cognitively from a motor control perspective, perfectly functional. And one of the biggest risk factors for an aneurysm is smoking. And I went to visit her at the hospital one day and I parked in a little side street because I was a poor uni student and didn't want to pay for parking at the hospital. <laughs> so I parked off in a little side street and I was walking down the back of the hospital to go and visit her one day and she was standing out the front in a hospital gown smoking. And I will never forget the feeling in my body when I saw the person who I was the closest to on the face of this earth, the person that I loved more than anything and anyone else, after I almost had to face losing her, standing there smoking, doing the very thing that was the biggest risk factor for her life. And mm -hmm. I cried and, like, I... I don't remember the moment, but in reflection, I think I was saying something like um, at least it felt like smoking was more important to me and uh, more important to her than me and all these kinds of things, right? Now, that significant health event was not a catalyst for my mum to stop smoking. Fast forward four years and my first child was born. And I had said, because obviously by now it's pretty clear how I felt about smoking, and my mum mm. really wanted to be, to be there for his birth. And I had said, if you want to be there for his birth, you have to be a non-smoker. And she said, oh, it's okay, you know, like I'll wash my hair and clean my clothes and I'll be if, before I come to the hospital and that kind of thing. And I was like, no, if you want to be in our home, with my newborn baby, you'll be a non-smoker. It's not enough for you to go and have a shower. You'll be a non-smoker. And she quit smoking. Wow. wow. And so <clears throat> it's this value proposition when it comes mm. to behaviour change. And, you know, I'm trained in hypnotherapy and that is the basis of all hypnotherapy is basically understanding the value proposition and 
taking people on a journey to physically, viscerally experience the extreme to then be able to flip it into, like it activates their motivation. Um, so having an understanding of, well, if I don't make this change, what's it actually going to cost me? How's it impacting mm. me now? How's it going to impact me in 10 years if I don't make this change now? How's it going to impact my kids? Well, and actually, that that, oh, it's huge. huge. It's massive. Like you've really touched on something really important and, um, you know, hats off to your mom for being able to take that message and not actually view it through a, you know, almost an incredibly demanding part and seeing it where, you know, what you were sort of doing it from, which is, you know, I want you to be there, but I, I don't want this around my, my child and she, she changed it. So that's, that's, that's amazing. But it's the effect of change or the, the effect of no change to people around you, people that love you, people that care for you. Yep. That um, is another, just is probably a topic by itself. It's like, how, how do you care for someone and want them to be their best and most authentic self when the change that is required for them or the perceived change or the change they want to do, it's taking them too long, they're not doing anything about it or things yeah. like that. How, how does that affect you? But it's it's just a, to to be able to want the change, I think, is the start of the awareness because yeah. if you don't want the change, then you're not aware and that's okay. You just keep on keep on doing you be you mm-hmm. but what i what i found from personal experience and i'll always come back to food because it you know seems to be my go-to when you know sort of understanding sort of change for me is the when i'm like i'd i'd get this sense of guilt after i've eaten Right, and you you'd probably be aware of you know what that means and all of those things. So I started working backwards. It's like okay, why? How do how do I get to this place of guilt? And I go step by step, and then that got me to a point where I said to myself, or allowed myself to observe my behaviour and my reactions as I was going through certain lead up events that I know would end up in a guilt phase. For example, if I would, you know, this was um, actually quite a few years ago when I was working for a company, I was an employee. I'd go go lunch, grab some KFC, go to a park somewhere, eat it in the car, mm-hmm. and then go back to work and I'm just not feeling good. However, when I go back, from the not feeling good and step it back. I actually found that as I'm leading into lunch and I know it's coming, the anticipation and the excitement is now starting to build. I'm like, okay, this is interesting. Mm-hmm. And then I get out and I go into the car and I go through drive through. I mean, this is all very closet eating. Then as I get to the menu boards, my excitement is absolutely peaking at this point because 
I don't know exactly why it was. Maybe it was a fact I can have whatever I like. I can order as much as I like, <laughs> whatever it is, right? And at that point, I then order it. I've paid for it. By now, I'm coming down off the peak of the excitement. I've then got the yeah. food. I can smell it. It's still great, but the excitement's coming down. I then go and eat it. I've ordered too much because my eyes are bigger than my stomach. So it must be like this abundance piece or lack of abundance, right? So I'm trying to create it through. I could have as many this and that, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then by the time I've finished eating everything, my mouth is just full of the, you know, the spices and all of that. You're then going, trying to get it. It's like the taste out of your mouth. You can feel the grease. You're looking at, you know, empty things. And then you sort of go, why did I just do that? And I think where I started to unpick all of that is there was something that was really generating that pure excitement around ordering mm -hmm. the food. It wasn't yeah. actually about eating it. And for me, that was like a little mind blown. And this is even before I started the whole spiritual journey and things like that. But it's like far out. The excitement around ordering the food, there's a clue in that. And so I, I don't have that issue anymore. Um, Can I ask a question? Uh, yeah, go for it. Reflecting, even if it's not relevant now, was mm -hmm. there any other area of your life where you got a kick out of doing something that you shouldn't be doing? Reflecting back, my immediate answer is no, but now I'm second-guessing that. Actually, yeah, the answer is no. There was really? nothing else. There was nothing else because um, at that time, the only thing I can reflect on when you ask that question is... I'm going reflecting back even in your childhood. Like, was it thrilling to oh, kind right. of... Oh, right, okay. Like, I, I was, like, if it was just in that period of time? like No, no, no. no. I'm talking of, no. about where there was thrill in doing something a little bit rebellious and doing something you shouldn't have been there's a key word there's i'm emphasizing yeah, the okay. word shouldn't, shouldn't. But okay yeah. was that a pattern in your bio okay. in your brain chemistry in my childhood um i know i should listen to my parents but i won't i didn't necessarily get a kick out of it it's just sort of like my if i can i'll force my agenda um, when I was really young, I used to just steal things, not because, and, and from other people and from shops, and I'm talking like four and five, mm -hmm. but I wasn't without stuff. I, I was yeah. never without anything. So, but I didn't feel at that point I was getting a kick out of it. But look, without any other, if I, David C, David want, David take. Yeah. So maybe that's the thrill. Um, that's probably the closest thing. Um, the other thing was prolific lie. Like if I could string a true sentence together, it would be a fucking miracle. Oh, pardon, pardon the French, right? Um, when, when I was around the same time as the, the sort of stealing. I don't know if I was getting kicks out of it, but it was definitely there was a lack of care about the consequences, I suppose. Yeah, okay. Yeah, interesting. It is very interesting. 
but I, I guess got to say, like, and when I when I look back at how did I kick those habits, right? Growing up, um, I remember that I could I could see in people's faces that they just didn't believe a word I said. Yeah, but I didn't care, so I just kept on lying. Like there was no desire to change because, well, if someone says, did you do that? Did you take that? Did you not do that? Whatever it was, I'd say, no, are you sure? No, I think you're lying. Well, it wasn't me. Eventually the conversation ends. How committed are you to this conversation? Mm -hmm. You just move on. The thing that changed for me to now never lie, like, I absolutely, it is one of those things that is just absolutely so front of mind for me is integrity because there was a turning point probably as I got older, it was definitely like around 12, 13, where integrity and respect became things. Yeah. And so staying in that comfort zone of I don't need to change this, even though I knew what I knew I was doing was wrong, and had an effect on other people, it all changed because the inaction was now more uncomfortable than the action. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's it's exactly that, isn't it? I use the mm. analogy of a, tooth, of a toothache and I'll say to people, mm. um, the thing for me is I won't work with just anyone who's willing to throw money at me to do some work. I qualify people to determine if they're ready for it because anyone can talk the talk. If you've ever dated someone, people can say all they want. Mm. Just because they're saying something and I've got they've got the most amazing bio doesn't mean, even if they genuinely mean it, it doesn't mean to say that that's the reality. And when people can sit there and say all the right things about wanting to change and being ready, they mean that. But I know that they have a nervous system and their nervous system is hardwired to move them away from pain and discomfort towards pleasure. So I need to gauge, well, what's the intensity of their pain and discomfort right now? And are they willing to turn towards the pain and discomfort because they know that's the only way out? So to give you an example, someone might be terribly afraid of going to the dentist and they might Mm. have a... um, they might have a toothache and their fear of the dentist is always there. It's an always, it's an always undercurrent. It's always there. And that's the equivalent of it's uncomfortable to turn towards pain and discomfort. But if you only have a dull toothache, the fear of the dentist is going to outweigh the urgency of seeing the dentist because well, it's just, not just the sound it's of the not enough. it's not hurting enough the um, (laughs) urgency isn't there but because of the fear of the dentist they Mm. don't see the dentist and that fear is a constant so that's staying here if you're watching on youtube you'll see my hands if you're listening on the um, podcast jump on youtube (laughs) and subscribe there it's way better when you get to see us Um, so the, the the fear of the dentist is the constant but the pain from avoiding the dentist starts to rise and Mm. all of a sudden the gap and the ratio between the the um motivation to not go to the dentist i.e the fear and the 
urgency and necessity to go to the dentist, i.e. the discomfort from the tooth pain, they start to balance each other out. And around about this point, around about where they're equal, there is a motivation and drive towards action. Mm. And when that motivation and drive towards action starts to happen, around about here where they're going, I can't take this pain anymore, I can't live like this, I can't do this anymore, if something doesn't change, I'm in real trouble, that to me is the indicator that even if this gets uncomfortable, they will go for it. They are in. Because if they're here, if they are, if their necessity to change is not as high as the fear of change, they're not going to change, no matter how mm. bad they want it. And so there's got to be this urgency factor. So in the case of the dentist, when that pain gets so unbearable, do you think that they are going to care about their fear of the dentist anymore? That's going to fade into the background like it's nothing. They'll hmm. rock up. They'll go, please, just make it stop. I don't care what it takes. Just make this pain go yeah. away. Please just make rip, it the stop. Damn, rip the damn tooth out. I don't care. Needle, no needle. Yeah. Just, just do it. Yeah, right? Exactly. All of a sudden, they are willing to turn towards that because hmm. there's no choice. And this is why I say don't fear rock bottom. Rock bottom's a really terrible place to be. You don't want to hang out there for long. But hitting rock bottom is a really important place to get to because when you're at rock bottom, you will do whatever it takes. You will do whatever it takes to elevate. And so when I'm having a conversation with someone and they're, and I'll say to them, oh, you know, so how much of how much is this impacting you? How much is it impacting those around you? I'm really trying to gauge and get an understanding for how much of an issue is this issue? Because if it's only a four out of 10, probably not going to actually commit and do what needs to be done in order to see a change. Mm. But if they're at, I'm really looking for like an eight, nine or 10 out of 10 of I cannot go on like this. If something doesn't change, I don't know what I'm going to do. Okay. Those so I, I, just want, I just want to stop you there. I want you to give us a little freebie here. I want you to give us yeah. the, the three top questions that you would use to qualify someone before they give you a rating out of 10. Yep. So I would ask them what their issues are because if yep. they don't even have awareness of their issues, then straight away that tells me they're very, very, very early in their journey. So I'm, I'm gauging for self-awareness um, and self-awareness is a huge gate. Even in all of the application forms for all of my programs, there's a huge element of self-awareness because if someone's writing a one or two word answer, it tells me they're not willing to go deeper. They're not ready. So that's the first thing. That's the first gate that I'm looking for. Um, the second gate is a willingness to go deeper if they are led deeper. And so what I mean by that is I will ask questions like, so how are these issues affecting you? And then so that's on a personal level. Oh, it's really affecting my sleep. It's really affecting this. It's um, impacting my relationships. It's mm. getting in the way of me being able to be present with my kids. And then a willingness to go, how is this impacting the people around you? And the people who are really ready to go there will, will actually usually have a pause and they'll go, oh, oh, no, it's affecting my kids because I'm not there for them. Like I, I am never present with them. It's affecting my partner because they 
we don't get to go anywhere. We don't get to do anything because my issues mean that we stay home, that it's missing out. He, he, he or she, they don't get to feel close to me because I have no sex drive and they feel rejected. Mm. And, and, and so it's really a willingness to look at the painful stuff. If someone is still at surface level brushing it off like, oh, yeah, no, I don't think it really affects anyone else and, no, this is just a me thing, and you can even tell in their body language and the energy that they're having that conversation, I know that they're not willing to look at the depth of the pain and I would be, it would be unethical for me to take their money in that moment because the mm. drive for change at a physiological level is not there. And so... That's when I would say, you know, it sounds like this is really hard for you. I don't think that my work is what you need right now, but I would recommend that you try this. Like, and I would mm. refer them to some resources or whatever. But usually, even if someone has um, not been ready then, it's, this, it's the dentist case again. Give it six mm. to 12 months. And when that urgency gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, then they will go, oh, I need this. I need this. Mm. Like I, I will do whatever it takes. So I think you and I talk a lot about being in the present, right, in the right now and being aware. And I think that's vitally important. But in this case, do you ever use the situation of let's look at the future in six months' time? Mm-hmm. And yep. let's just say you make no change. What does that look like for you? Okay. Mm-hmm. Now imagine just for a moment that you were free of this burden or you have made this change. What does six months now look like for you? Yeah. Or not even six months. What does five or 10 years look like? All these effects that you've mm-hmm. got. So for argument's sake, you really want to leave that job because, you know, it's you're just finding that it's just not filling your bucket. Not even that. It's getting to the point where you're you're dragging yourself into work. You're feeling lethargic. You just you're completely unmotivated. You just absolutely it is an absolute chore. But you've been doing it for, say, I don't know, 13 years, 10, 13, mm-hmm. 15 years, right? It's all you've known. You're very comfortable at it. But then there's other people sort of saying there's these jobs over here and there's jobs over here and there's jobs over here. Oh, but what if I leave? And as amazing yeah. as that sounds, it feels what if it's not? insurmountable. Yeah, it feels yeah. impossible. 100%. It's actually the first thing that I do in week one of Rise and Thrive. I literally gotcha. take people on a journey exactly of that because mm. it's not only it's not only the issues that they're aware of. There are things that they're doing in their life that they're not aware of yet and wasn't even on the list of issues that they've raised. So say, for example, a really, really great example is people who say they're staying together for the kids. Right. Now, I grew up with parents who stayed together for the kids, basically. Gotcha. And when... I have someone, so I've got lived experience with that. And when I have someone who is in a relationship which is extremely detrimental to their physical, mental, psychological, emotional, financial health, and 
I can see the solutions. There are many solutions there for them to end the relationship, to leave the relationship. There are absolutely circumstances where this does not apply. There are definitely circumstances where people genuinely are, it is dangerous for them to leave um, and that's Mm. real. But there are more often than not, people can just make the decision and end the relationship. But Mm. there's this story of the broken home and I think we're going to end up doing a whole episode just on broken home story. But ultimately, yeah, it's a huge topic. But ultimately, the decision to leave, if we don't make that decision, and we keep our kids in a home environment where there's no love modeled between parents, there's no boundary Mm. set to say, I am worthy of more than being treated like this. We're not upholding a standard. We're not honoring ourselves and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, right. If we don't make that choice, if we don't make that change, it's not just hard for us while we endure the next 18 years until our kids are adults. That's hard. But what's harder is facing the fact that by you not making that choice, your kids had to grow up with parents who were unhappy without the neural resources to realise that they were unhappy because of their own adult issues, not because they weren't good enough. The child interprets Mm. that as why aren't I good enough? If I was good enough, mummy would be happy. If I was good enough, daddy would want to play with me. They don't understand the adult dynamics and adult functions. And Mm. so... Or even, or even to even to a point where sorry to cut you off, but even to a point, a child will feel that, and a child will feel if daddy's not talking to mummy, or if mummy's not talking to daddy, maybe I need to do something to try and bring them together. Yep. And then they they inadvertently, even though they may not realize it or not, they start to feel like co-responsible. Mm-hmm. as you know in part of the relationship because if i don't remind them that they love each other maybe they don't um so is that my job now because um, exactly and not only that children will learn relational dynamics by observing the relationships of their adults of the adults in their lives and so mm. if you have been in a relate, like let's say me as a mother, if I remained in a relationship where my husband was abusive, neglectful, emotionally absent, um, insert list here, mm. that is what my kids think a relationship looks like. That's what they think is acceptable, tolerable, normal. They, they think that's what love is. But that's not love. And unless we actually intervene and take actions to show them what a healthy relationship is, that is my non-negotiable. So Mm. my husband is not the father of my children and my non-negotiable is that we model a healthy relationship. Because if I think back, and this was a real deal breaker for me, I actually remember saying this to my dad once. It was very confronting. If my husband treated me the way that you treated my mum when I was a child, would you want me to stay with him? And he said no. That was very confronting. And so 
when when we've had that conversation and, and his answer was no, first of all, there's a big realisation that, well, that's what I witnessed. That's what I observed as a child. That's what I thought a relationship was. And so now here I am in the big wide world trying to navigate, well, what does a healthy relationship look like? I don't know because I've never seen one before. And mm. my negotiable with my husband is if we don't know how to have a healthy relationship, we've got to learn. If we, we've, if we have a new situation come up, we need to learn how to, how would we want our children to experience this when they are adults in a respectful, loving, honouring relationship? And so that requires change. Yes, mm. change is uncomfortable. Change can be awkward. Having conversations to move toward change can be awkward and uncomfortable. Mm. But if we don't change, it comes at a massive cost. And I am not willing there is nothing, no amount of pain and discomfort that is worth avoiding if the cost of avoiding it is the future of my kids. And absolutely, you know, coming from someone as a child, I only realize now because, um, you know, in hindsight, that my parents were not in love. They were not necessarily happy together. They had fun times. They tolerated each other. A lot of the time they, they didn't. And so when I grew up, I didn't necessarily know what love was. And look, I'm, I'm, I'm a lot closer to understanding it, especially in the last two years. But up until the last two years, had no idea. Yeah. And I've got to say, you know, I've had – I've been married twice and divorced twice. And not because these people, my first and my second wife, not because they're bad people, far from it. It was <clears throat> simply because something had changed. And look, I think I'm, I'm a big player in all of this. You know, how can you love someone, me, that doesn't know how to love, I think is a very big telltale sign. But more importantly, <clears throat> even though these these two women were amazing in their own right, had to pause right there because of a little coughing fit because a very well-placed piece of phlegm just seemed to sit right at the back of my throat. So thank you, Ashley, for joining me for that. Anyway, what, <laughs> I, was, what I was saying <clears throat> was um, even in their own right, these two women are amazing people, but... Mm -hmm putting myself and that person together, we were not modeling what was a healthy, loving relationship. There were parts of it, absolutely. And we were both doing the best we could in that situation. However, the end result was, even just from a modeling point of view, regardless if I'm happy or not, I'm simply not modeling to the kids what I'd want them or what I would want for them. Yeah. Like for argument's sake, for my for my daughter, if you know, she'd married a guy who was just like me, right? Good guy, but she gets together with him and she's unhappy and they're arguing and all of this, then for her, she would need to know, ah, this is this is not healthy. This is not right. Mm -hmm. You know. This should not be what I'm aspiring to do. Yes, he is a good guy. Yes, 
he does these things. And yes, he does tick some of those boxes that he, you know, that he provides. But all in all, I'm still so desperately unhappy. What do I do? Yeah. So um, that was kind of the the catalyst behind that because yes, was it modeled to me? Was it modeled to you? Mm-hmm. I'm hoping that you know, and a lot of other people who are awakening and becoming more aware and conscious of these things, as their children grow up, there's going to be a whole new shift. Yeah. Now, hugely. So, hugely. Yeah. And, and my hope is that through the work, well, even through this podcast and through the work that I'm doing um, with the Remind Institute, that we can create ripple effects from generations and generations and generations because trauma is intergenerational, but so too is healing. And mm. I, wanted, I wanted to make a point quickly um, on issues. And one of the most important things that everyone needs to understand is that the issue that you are facing that you want to change is only in your life because it's serving a purpose for you. It is meeting a need. It's getting a significance need met. It's getting a certainty need met. It's getting a connection need met. It is only there because it is serving a purpose. And even in the most unhealthy relationship, the significance and connection of and certainty of having someone still feels safer than having no one. And mm. that's that was like, boom, mic drop. That was the point of this episode for me, really, is to communicate that, that if you're struggling to make a change, you need to have a look at what purpose does this issue serve in my life. Depression serves a point, serves a purpose for us. Anxiety serves a purpose for us. Like I'll say to people, how is your issue serving you? And now initially at the surface level, they'll say, it's not. It's the worst thing that's ever happened to me. I don't want this issue. But then when I hold their hand and make it safe to go nearer to the discomfort of that, the truth of that question, they realize, well, oh, my gosh, I, I had someone who had severe depression turn around and go, depression has meant that if I am having a hard day, I get to go home from work. No one asks any questions. It gives me an out. It, it allows me to say no from going to social situations that I don't know how to say no to otherwise. It gets people, it draws people near to me. If I'm depressed, the people who love me come and they be with me. They bring me things. They look after me. And if we haven't had modelled, if I have a need, do I know how to express it? If I don't want to do something, do I know how to say no to, do, to doing that in a way that honours me, in a way that communicates healthily, but ultimately every problem that we have in our life and everything that we want to change, the issue is serving a purpose for us. How is it giving us certainty in our life? Certainty, predictability, mm. it's a pattern that's always there. I know that when I smoke, I feel calm. So smoking is solving a problem of uncertainty and uncertainty feels very unsafe to the nervous system. I mm. know that when I blah, I get connection, I get mm. attention. And I want to share um, 
Well, I, I had a brain tumour when I was young. Um, it was actually the Christmas before my mum's aneurysm, I was having surgery for a brain uh, brain tumour and hers happened at Christmas time as well. So two Christmases in a row in the neuro ward of different hospitals. And someone, within two years of that surgery, someone said to me, what purpose is that serving for you? Because it came back. So within two years of the surgery, the tumour came back. And someone said to me, what purpose is the tumour serving for you? And I did exactly the same thing. I was like, what do you mean? This is the worst thing ever and it makes me feel awful and I'm so sick all the time and blah, 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 blah. And when I actually sat with it, I realised that I got massive significance over being the medical anomaly, over having, because I was going to specialist after doctor, after expert, after this, after that, trying to get answers and no one knew. So I was like, it made me special. It made me special Mm. because no one could figure out my problem. So I got massive significance from it. And then it got me connection because it was like this big, scary thing and people fussed over me and I had people contacting me that had rejected me previously in my life, not rejected really, but because they weren't present in my life, I felt rejected. And so I had Mm. these people coming and fussing over me. The, The fact that I felt unwell a lot of the time got me out of a whole lot of situations. It got me, it gave me a ticket to special consideration at uni and extra time here and all this kind of stuff, right? So as soon as I realized, oh my gosh, this brain tumor is my body's very, very clever solution to all these problems because I don't know how to feel special if I don't have some complex medical need. I don't know how to feel like people love and care about me if I don't have some crisis going on in my life. I don't know how to set a boundary or say no when I just don't want to do anything and I don't have a medical excuse as to why I can't do it. And when Mm. all those things went away, when that was no longer serving a purpose in my life, it was gone. Wow. Massive. So your your problems will always be serving a purpose. And just know that change is available for you. Hard is down both paths. Is it hard to stay in a relationship? Yes, it's hard. Is it hard to leave a relationship? Yes, it's hard. Mm. But choose your hard. Because one of those hards can have a lifelong impact on your kids and still continue the the string of intergenerational trauma. Mm. One of those hards can break a chain and actually set you free. Yeah, well, well, both of them are going to have an effect on on the kids in in this in this in this sense. Yeah. It's just, are you open, or do you do you see potential for something better? Yeah, and are you going to allow yourself to go and find that? Do you believe in that? But it, it kind of feels like the biggest part about why change is so hard is the perception of what it is that we're staying with, are we masking over a lot of the cracks? Yeah. <clears throat> are we... Yeah. Turning a blind are, eye. Yeah. Are we are we sort of downplaying it from a survival point of view just to survive it? We're not thriving in it. 
Um, but the the big pain, the big challenge, the hurdles is going to be what's in the future. Mm. So you mentioned before, uncertainty is, is going to be one. Yeah. When I've created the alternative in the future, have I done a good enough job of it? Do I trust that that's going on? Have I dotted my I's and crossed my T's? If I'm listening to my intuition, do I really trust that? Or can I hear my intuition? Yeah. And then, but basically outside of all that, what are people going to think of me if I do that? What's a child going to think of me if I end it? Yeah. Right? What, what, what the does society think about judgment? Like I, I'm Christian and something in that circumstance, like I, I know fully well that there are people who stay in extremely abusive relationships and very, very damaging relationships because of the fear of rejection from the church if they were to get divorced. Yeah. And that, you know, there are so many influences on our lives um, that complicate things. And so you're not alone. You're not alone you in this. Could, you could also be doing it for all, you know, for all the right reasons because things aren't that bad. Yeah. Right. I used to justify it in my first marriage because even though um, our relationship was extremely toxic, I used to go, oh, no, it's I'm not in an abusive relationship. He's never laid a finger on me. Yeah. <laughs> Disregard the many, many, many years of psychological and emotional abuse, mm. even financial to an extent. But when you're, as I we'll keep coming back to the dentist thing, when the desperation for change is stronger than the desperation for things to stay the same and to hold on to what you can control and hold on to the certainty of the known, that's when you're in your power. That's where that is your opportunity and don't miss it. Yeah. And that's what I specialize in because, like I said, and sometimes part of my role is to grab someone by the hand and make it safe for them to go towards their discomfort so that then they can reach the point of going, oh, my gosh, I need this mm. because they would never feel safe to reach that point on their own. So absolutely or, or huge just, topic today, Dave. Yeah, or even just one, one last point before we, we wrap, wrap up. Yeah, they may not know any better. It could be because mm -hmm. things have been modelled to them, and I'll stick on the, the relationship, that it's sort of like, well, actually a healthy relationship only needs to tick one of three boxes, mm -hmm. right? Because in I've been shown that I only get this from this person and I only get that from that person and outside people and da-da-da-da, as opposed to yeah. going, actually, no, you can get them all in one. Yeah. That is worth fighting for. They go, no, can't possibly be. But I guess I would, what I'm I would to... argue it's worth healing for. Oh, absolutely. If we are fighting, if we are fighting to have it, completely wrong energy. No, what if I'm saying we, is fighting, fighting to... the fear, right? Fighting the yes. fear yeah. to heal. Because healing to have that. When when you for me, when you're standing in front of fear and you're pushing through it, for me, there's an element of fight. You are yeah. going, you're going into it yeah. because 
you can't just, you know, um your way through fear. Yeah. It is yeah. very it is very <laughs> triggering, right? You just float yeah. through it. That doesn't happen. You got to stand there and go, right, I'm coming for you. And yeah. I'll I'll step I'll step into it. So if you've been given the thought, it just drops in, I could be happier. Right? Or if you're given the thought, I want more, and you shush it away really quickly. You're not listening to your intuition because it was your thought that you're shushing away. And what's yeah. shushing it away is that fear. Yeah. And so if you need to know when to make a change, you'll know it because you can't walk away from the feeling that you need to change something. As yeah. small as it is, if it's whispering, yeah. and that whisper turns into yeah. a bit louder, a bit louder until it yells at you. And then suddenly <laughs> at some point they go, is this mic on? Tap, tap, tap. Yeah. And, then, and that's exactly it, right? So, so the toothache is gone from a dull ache. It's a whisper. It's a yeah. prompting. We need we need to see a dentist. We need to get help here. We need yep. to get out of here. We need to make a change here. Mm -hmm. And it will just get louder and louder and louder and louder. Until and louder. You, you can't eat and to all the way to a point where half your face feels like it's just yep. in it's been shot off and there's just nerves going everywhere. Yeah. You kind of make that it change. But yeah. hundred percent. And it is not uncommon for people to be trigger warning on the cusp of suicide by the time they reach me and it is like I cannot explain to you how much of a move of God it has been for people to cross my path like I'm talking absolute most random incredible impeccable divine timing divine intervention just you cannot even fathom how on earth mm. I crossed we crossed paths at the exact time that they were ready to make this change. And that is what gives me faith in being able to surrender. Because when when I surrendered, the solutions were put on my path. When I was mm. gone, I can't do this anymore. Take over. Like every mm. solution was placed on my path. And and it continues to be right down to. I was having a problem in my business and as, as recently as just yesterday, the very person with the very expertise that I needed crossed my path and I've just nice. gone an answer to a prayer, divine intervention, divine timing. I'm not scared mm. to make this change. I'm not scared to spend the money on it. I'm ready to do that because I don't want it to scream. I've got enough faith mm. now that I can take action and make change off the whispers. And when mm. you can move through life responding and adapting in faith and trust to the whispers of those promptings, you don't need the screams anymore. The universe doesn't have to come and smack you with a bus before you're willing to take action. And I'd, I'd even say, dare say, based on what you're saying there, healing is change. Change is healing. Right, yeah. they they are very interlinked. So yeah. as you go through this cycle of facing your fear and healing, that's change. You are actually going to be changing something. But as you're changing something, it's just it's healing. So the more and more you do these things, then you start to feel the tingles in your arms. Oh, okay. I need to pay attention. There's something yeah. coming through, as opposed to 
was that a piece of wood that hit the back of my head? Um, you know, um, <clears throat> I guess all of that. But Ash, this has been. Oh, it's been a, Every it's time been a, we get to the end, we go, "Oh my gosh, that was huge!" It's a, it's a, it's a massive one. But guys, if you if you found us because of this episode and you're finding change difficult. Our hearts go to you. Um, we're here for you. We send you our love. Um, we are definitely talking about it from a place of lived experience, not your experience, our own experience, but we understand, we know how difficult it can be just from a relative point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're here, you're wanting change, yes, it's scary. Yes, it's difficult. You're going to have to back yourself, but just know you've been, you are giving yourself the message to make the change. Find the support networks around you, find the strength within you. You got this. 100%. And if you resonated with that eight to 10 out of 10, I can't go on like this and something has to change. That is my zone of genius. Please reach out because mm. you will make it through this. You will be on the trajectory back up and I'm covered in goosebumps right now. <laughs> yeah. And also, as a yeah, definitely reach out to Ash. She does some amazing work. And But if, you, if you're not ready for that just yet, just go through our library, because now it's starting to become a library, actually, of, um, of things, of videos, of podcasts. See what resonates start to sort of pick through all of that. Yeah, absolutely. So much love to you all, guys. Thanks for listening. Absolutely. Bye-bye. Catch you next week. <laughs>